So apparently uh, there was a little horse race in Louisville yesterday. Did you guys hear about that? <laughs> the greater uh, celebration this weekend, though, occurs today at Cinco de Mayo. As a Rodriguez, obviously this is a big deal to me. I've never even known when Cinco de Mayo, like why we celebrate it. I just know it's May 5th. That's about the only Spanish I know too, by the way. So there was, like as I was saying, a, a little horse race yesterday, yesterday in, in Louisville. Many of you guys probably hung out with friends and family, watched the race. I went and saw a movie, and uh, we happened to catch the race when we got home uh, and really enjoyed it. Was, it was an exciting race and an exciting ending. Pretty controversial, right? Yeah. So in order to have any chance at winning at horse races, right, uh, I'm gonna, actually going to use... Uh, gambling is an illustration this morning. Can you guys believe that? Isn't that crazy? Uh, I would assume that a sports better will have to know the horses. Okay? I would assume that a good sports better would have to know the horses. They'll know uh, their strengths and their weaknesses. Uh, you'll want a report of their background, the conditions of the track, right? Did the conditions of the track play into the outcome yesterday a little bit? Uh, the weather before the race. Uh, and lastly, how they look as they walk out onto the track. I think sports bettors look at their ears. There's something going on there. I don't understand it. Uh, as in the race this weekend, the rain affected the way people bet. Uh, and this was only due to the knowledge, as I was watching coverage of the race, uh, they had stats on how each horse had performed in, in rained-on races in the past. Uh, a sound sports better investigates all of these variables, taking in as much information as possible in order to bring in the best judgment to their final decision. Some of you are thinking, okay, Keith, how are you bringing in sports betting into uh, the Bible this morning? Well, we begin, as, as I said, a new series in the book of Colossians. And I want to encourage you, just as, as a sound sports better investigates their horses, investigates the track... We should investigate Scripture in the same way. We should understand everything that's going on, on and around within this letter. See, too many times as, as followers of Christ, we just read this at face value and we don't dig in any deeper. I would encourage you this morning, and as we're going to do, we're going to unpack a little bit of Colossians. We're going to look at the background of this letter this morning. Uh, we're going to look at the cultural context. So who are these people that Paul wrote to? And what was going on in and around uh, this city? So we're going to kind of approach this morning in two parts, if you guys are prepared for that. We're going to do a little bit of teaching up front. We're going to learn uh, what's going on, like I said, in and around this city. And then we're going to dig into what the Word is actually saying. Okay, is that all right with you guys? Good. Because we're doing it anyways. So we begin with, with our background, uh, our first space there in your bulletin. If you didn't get a bulletin this morning, I apologize. We're going to print out more of this uh, next week. A good thing is when you run out of bulletins, right? Because it means there's people here. So uh, we're sorry for that. We don't have any more, but we'll make sure we have more for you next week. Uh, just follow along this morning. So we begin with our background of this letter. Who are the authors of the letter to the church in Colossae? Uh, it is Paul and Timothy, very clearly, right? It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. And it may seem clear that the, that the letter was written by Paul and Timothy because what? It says so. It says very clearly. But 
There are many varying opinions of the authorship of this letter. Some scholars believe that the letter was was penned possibly by another author after Paul's death and written in the name of Paul. That happens sometimes in in works of antiquity or works in ancient times. Uh, The reason is that they feel that the letter is not written consistently with Paul-like phrases. Uh, They feel that the theology is a little bit different than some of the things that he said in other letters. Okay, but I want to ask you this question. Has everything you've ever written or everything you've ever spoken about been exactly the same every single time? No. If you guys went to a church and the preacher preached the same exact message every week, what would happen to that church? It would be empty, wouldn't it? People wouldn't stick around because it would get pretty boring. And so I think we see the variance within this letter of Paul's personality coming out, which is beautiful because we know that if, if we believe that the Bible is God's written word, we believe that the, these human authors were inspired by the Spirit of God to write exactly what God wanted, but also we get the personal flair of each one of these authors within Scripture. And isn't that amazing? Because we can go from work to work to work within Scripture and see their imprint on the pages. We get their personality. It's just like when we have different preachers up here on the stage. We get a little bit different personality and we learn in a different way. And so I believe after careful study that this letter is in fact written by the Apostle Paul and also his counterpart, Timothy, as it says here, helped him in some of the content there. So we have that. Our author is who? Paul and Timothy, but mainly Paul. Okay? And the location now. We move to the location. It may seem clear again in the passage Where is the location? Colossae. Okay, if you guys want to write that down this morning. How do we know that? Because Paul says so. To God's holy people where? In Colossae. Okay? Now, some of you may be thinking, where in the world is Colossae located? Okay? And so I have a map for you this morning. Do you guys see it on that map there? Real clear, isn't it? No. You can't see it on this map. If we can go to the next slide. Big, bold square you see with a red dot right next to it. Uh, This is my work in the photo editor here on my iPad. That is Colossae. That's where uh, Colossae is located. And why do I make this point this morning? Because we understand from history that Colossae was actually a small, less influential town. That's why it wasn't on the first map. If you look at, at the maps in the back of your Bibles of Paul's missionary journey... Many of them you won't find this town listed on. That's because Paul never actually went there. Isn't that surprising? He never actually went there. Some of the background on this city, it had been a major trading hub at one point prior to this period in time, probably a few hundred years uh, prior to the time of the establishment of this church. Uh, But a deviation in a major roadway leading through Colossae left it kind of as a footnote in history. Being dwarfed by its larger neighbor, some of you have heard of this town, Laodicea. Have you guys heard of that? Maybe if you've read Revelation, you've heard about the church in Laodicea. Colossae was, as I said, not directly Paul's church. It is thought thought that Paul never visited this church, nor is he directly responsible for it being there. A man named Epaphras, as we'll learn next week, 
is thought to have been saved by the teachings of Paul in one of Paul's missionary journeys and returned to his hometown of Colossae to share the gospel and begin a church. Scholars also think that this area suffered a major earthquake just after the dating of Paul's letter, condemning the area to ruin until this day. You see, the city is so insignificant to history that it still lies in ruins and has never been excavated. If you go home this afternoon and and Google that city, you'll see some pictures. It lays in ruins. You can see some edges of buildings in, in the ground in the town because it was devastated by an earthquake. And yet, what do we have that remains but a rich letter that Paul wrote to this insignificant church in this insignificant town. Colossae was was varied in culture and religious history. It's thought to have had a, a large Jewish community present in that area, which will lead us to the occasion or purpose of Paul's writing. Why am I sharing this with you? Because I want you guys seeing the lens that we are going to read this letter through in the coming months. There's a lens that we're going to read this through. And the lens is that Paul is our occasion. He's correcting a false teaching within this church. Paul is correcting a false teaching. Where do we get that from? Throughout the letter, but specifically in Colossians 2.5. He says, I tell you this, so that no one may deceive you with, by fine-sounding arguments. So it seems as though this church was being influenced by a, a false teaching. In this letter, it will become apparent that Paul and Timothy are, are combating this false teaching. As I said, there was a Jewish community present in the area, and it seems as though Paul is speaking against the influence of what appears to be a Jewish influence and also some sort of mystical thing going on, too, within the community. Okay, and we'll unpack that in the coming weeks. It's kind of a tease for you to come back each and every week, right, to find out what these things are. We call this syncretism. Have you guys heard of this word syncretism, where there's a blending of a few different types of beliefs, and they were trying to influence the church and the teachings of Christ uh, in this church. Paul, to combat this, does not get defensive, though. That's the beauty of his argument in this letter. Paul makes an argument not through the defense of Jesus, but rather, as we're going to find out in the coming weeks, he kind of opens up the cage and lets the lion out. He lets Jesus defend himself for who Jesus is. How often do we as followers of Christ get defensive of our faith instead of just opening the door and presenting who Jesus is to people and letting them decide for themselves? That's what Paul does here. He doesn't get defensive. He says, this is Jesus, this is who he is, believe or not. Very clearly, Paul clearly declares that Jesus is supreme. In this letter, he declares that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Not some sort of works-based righteousness as being presented to this church, as we'll find out in this letter, but rather The grace of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross, being imparted to people through faith in his finished work. Jesus is the only way. 
And the beauty of this church is that it seems clear because Paul calls them faithful. Paul calls them faithful brothers and sisters in verse 2. It seems as though they, did, they didn't move their position or location from Christ. You see, their most important location or position on, on the map was not Colossae. That was their, their location, but as we learned from uh, J. Vernon McGee, I can't believe I'm quoting McGee this morning. As we learned from J. Vernon McGee, he puts it this way. He says, the saints are at Colossae, and it's important that we have an address down here, so we know their location here, but Paul gives us another location that they have. It says the people in Colossae, but what is their other location that he gives? He says two words, in what? Christ. In Christ. McGee says, we should have an address down here, but I love the way he puts this, but we ought to have an address up yonder. <laughs> What's our spiritual address? Is in Christ as followers of Christ, and we're going to unpack that truth here this morning. You see, Paul conveys a clear message in verse 2. He says in verse 2, to God's what? Holy people. Some of your versions of, of Scripture may say, to the saints. He's saying something about these people in this church. They have been covered by the blood of Christ, and so therefore, not because of their work, but the work of Christ, they are holy. They are set apart. They are saints. That's God's grace covering them. He says, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters, what? What is their spiritual location? In what? Christ. In Christ. And so from this, we learn, our next point here, we are holy because of our position in Christ. We are holy because of our position in Christ. It wasn't about their location in some insignificant little town in Asia. It was about their spiritual location, again, in Christ. The beauty of our relationship with Christ is that through His work alone, we are declared holy. And as some translations state, as you found in there, we are saints. Some of you in the room, you need to embrace that, that you are a saint because you're so hard on yourself, you beat yourself up every single day over sin in your life. But Jesus has covered that sin, past, present, and future, and you are a saint. Embrace that this morning. Stop living a defeated life. We are given that, that name saint or holy. We're given the family name. Isn't that beautiful that we are given the family name? Paul's use of, of in Christ here shows us the work of the Colossians, and I would say followers of Christ in this room, their adoption into the family. We've been given the family name. What's beautiful is I was looking through this passage here this morning. I had every intention of going to verse 8, but we ended at 2 when I was studying this week because there's just too much here. 
What's amazing is that, that our church family has recently walked through praying for a family close to our church and their journey to adopt uh, two kids from Africa. That family's pursuit of, of these children at all cost and the prayers of their friends and family both here at North Bullet Christian Church and Journey Church just down the road is a perfect illustration for our relationship with God the Father in Christ. For those of you who are, who are new to the church, I want to kind of bring you into the know. Here's what's going on. Ron and Patty Bradshaw, they're sitting right down here in the second row. They're not shy, so I'm not embarrassing them. Their daughter, Justy, and son-in-law, Nathan, uh, went to tremendous lengths to adopt two kids from Africa. And their story perfectly illustrates our story in Christ. Practically, to be positioned in Christ, right? Those children have been positioned in a new family. This family went, sought them out. It wasn't a mistake. They sought out these two kids, and they said, I want those two kids, and I want them to come with me. And they did everything in their power. I know they spent a long time over there waiting to bring those kids home. People in this church and churches all throughout this area praying for them and their journey. And isn't that just like our adoption into the family of God? God pursuing us. Saying, come into my family. People on mission surrounding people and showing them the love of Christ and being a light to what it means to have salvation through the work of Jesus and people praying for people to come to know Christ. You see, their position changed. They were here and now they're in this family. And it's the same thing with your adoption into the family of God. Our position changes. Apart from Christ, we are outside of God's family. To be very clear, we face God in His judgment, in His righteousness, in His glory on our own works. And the world around you tells you, if you're charitable and you're good enough, you're fine. You're going to measure up. Everything's okay. I hear people say, you do you. That doesn't make the mark. You have to be brought into the family. And the beautiful thing is that God does all of that for you. He sent His Son to die for you. He pursues you. He grabs your heart. He places His Holy Spirit inside of you to give a heart that loves Him that can place your faith and trust in His work. Practically, to be positioned in Christ. I want you guys thinking about this. The position. We are positionally holy now in Christ through His work. Practically, to be positioned in Christ has implications for our lives. So our lives are changed. We don't come into Christ and then keep being the same person. Does that make sense? We are, uh, we'll use the word transformed. So if we're positioned in Christ, this has implications for our lives. And we're going to look at, at four of those this morning. Four implications. Number one, to be in Christ 
means that your life is radically reoriented towards Jesus and his will for your life. To be in Christ means that your life is radically reoriented towards Jesus and his will for your life. You see, because our lives apart from Christ are all about me and what I want. And what, when Jesus brings you into the family, your priorities change. Your life is, is radically reoriented. Colossians 2, a 6 to the beginning of 7 says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, what does it say? Continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up. What is that a picture of? Is that, is that a picture of everything being together the minute you're in Christ? No. He says rooted. What happens with roots? They grow deep into the ground to get nourishment. Built up. The idea is that it's an, it's an ongoing thing. We unpacked some of that last week. But your life is, is radically reoriented. It's not the same. It changes direction. Looking at our illustration... Adopted children, right? Their lives are, are reoriented towards a new influence and will. I would say this, is that accepted perfectly every time? No. Just the same way that our, our spiritual position being brought into the family of Christ... We're radically reoriented to Christ and His will, but do we do that perfectly every time? No, and that's when we're thankful for His mercy and grace that covers those things. Number two, to be in Christ means that you are inseparably connected to Him. To be in Christ means that you are inseparably connected to Him. John 1.12, it says, Yet to all who did receive him, who is the him in this passage? Who's the him in this passage? Jesus, right? To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, what does it say? He gave the right to what? Become children of God. To be brought into what? The family. Now, parents in the room, do you cast your children off to the side? They're always connected to you, aren't they? They are always connected to you, tied to you. And our relationship with our kids is broken and sinful. God's relationship is perfect. So how much more perfectly are we connected to God? In Christ, you are inseparably connected to Him, to the family. John tells us that those who receive him, Jesus, are, are given, again, the family name. Their spiritual location is, is no longer Shepherdsville, Kentucky, or Mount Washington, or whatever other little communities we have around here that I don't know about yet. But as McGee said, it's up yonder. It's up yonder. And as ones who, who have been given the right to become children, the next logical connection is that we have all the rights and privileges of a child of God. 
Again, our illustration, are these adopted children treated differently than the other children in the family? No, they're treated exactly the same. Good, bad, or indifferent, right? They're treated exactly the same. They come with all the rights and the privileges. And so, who showed us our rights and privileges? Jesus. It says Jesus was the first fruits, and we receive all those privileges that he has. What are we talking about here? We're talking about resurrection in Christ. We're talking about new life. We're talking about spiritual newness. Jesus was the first fruit. His work was to defeat death. And through faith in his work, we received that same fruit. We get all the rights and benefits of the family name. How should that affect us? How should that affect us? That we get all the rights and benefits? Why do so many Christians walk around with their head like this when we have been raised victorious with our King, Jesus Christ? No matter what this life throws at you, we are victorious. I have, to, I have to share, I was, I was struck the other day. I was attending a, a prayer event in the park at Shepherdsville where National Day of Prayer, we pray for our country. And I, I understand the, the solemnness and the reverence of that event of gathering together. I understand us looking at our country and saying, man, things aren't necessarily heading the way that I agree with. But I also know that Scripture promises us and has showed us victory in Christ. And so I want to encourage you in this. Regardless of what happens in the land, Jesus is still on the throne. Jesus is still reigning. Jesus has won. And so we can mourn and grieve for our country, but as followers of Christ, we should hold our head up because we worship the one true King. We get all the rights and the benefits of the family. And so every prayer that we have should end with that victory. Lord, we're so thankful that we know the ending to the story. The ending of the story is not defeat. The ending of the story is God's victory. God setting everything right. The ending of the story is not us getting out of here and flying away. The ending of the story is God recreating and perfecting everything that he loves here on earth. We call it the new heavens and new earth coming together. To be in Christ means that, that Jesus determines our behavior. Number three, to be in Christ means that, that Jesus determines our behavior. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians six fifteen. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall, then, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? To be in Christ means that Jesus determines our behavior. See, the context of Paul's warning to the Corinthian church was this, this idea of freedom in Christ. That Christ has set us free from our sin and we have, we have freedom in Christ... This church 
and followers of Christ were, were freed from the bondage of sin. And yet Paul warns, do not use this freedom for your own selfishness. You see, Jesus determines our behavior. Jesus determines our behavior. Obedience to Christ means that we look at his life as our guidepost. Here's the application this morning of being in Christ, is that Jesus determines our behavior. If we want to know how to act as Christians, who should we look at? Jesus. Read the scriptures, read the gospels, read the book of John. If you want to be encouraged, read the book of John and see how Jesus acted. Christ is our guidepost. And with this too, because we've been brought into the family, we accept his uh, discipline and admonishment when when we deviate, right? God does discipline his children. God will correct our path. We have to speak about that. I know we want to shy away from that. I know we want everybody to feel good, but we have to understand that, that God will direct your path and he will correct if you get my drift if necessary, right? To be in Christ means that, that Jesus determines our behavior. And the beauty of this letter is that Paul is saying, you have been faithful. You are showing yourselves faithful. Obviously, there was some stuff going on in this church Or Paul wouldn't have had to write this letter. But for the most part, there was people in that church that were faithful to the teachings of Christ. But no matter what, if you are truly in Christ, even as as God disciplines you and corrects you and prunes you and sets you on the right path, you're always part of the family. Jesus doesn't give you his family name and then take it back. If you are in Christ, you have the family name. You've been brought into the family. You've been adopted. And number four this morning. To be in Christ means that you have a new family. We're not just talking about our spiritual family now. We're talking about our family here that's right in this room. To be in Christ means that you have a new family. Who is that family? Miss Terry this last week said, you always say the big C church. What do I mean by that? Maybe I need to clarify that. Okay, our new family is the church. And when I say the church, I'm talking about followers of Christ all over the world. Not just North Bullet Christian Church, but followers of Christ all over the world. And so when you hear me say the big C church, I'm talking about those people who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus all over the world. That's your new family. Not only are you brought into the family of Christ, you're given the family name, but you also have brothers and sisters that are surrounding you right here in this local body of believers and around the world. Paul says in Romans 12, 5, he says, So in Christ, we though many form what? One body. There's one body. And each member belongs to who? All the others. We're one family. We're a big family unit. Does that mean everything's going to be perfect and everybody's going to get along okay? No, we're going to have our problems. We're going to have our disagreements. But this is the means that God has chosen to show the world redemption through Christ. It's the church. 
It's the reason why I urge you each and every week, come and be with the church and worship with us. I'll say this, you, you can't practice Christianity apart from being a part of the church. You have to be in the church to, to practice our faith. Because our faith involves not only loving God, but what? We learned this last week. Loving who? Loving other people. Right here in our church. To be in Christ means that you have a new family and you have to embrace this new family and you have to grow relationally with this new family. Oftentimes, this is the way that God is going is to sharpen you and help you to grow is right here, week in and week out, being under the preaching of His Word, singing together, receiving communion, being in groups outside of this place. To be in Christ means you have a new family. Come and be a part of that family. Invest in this place. I'm not talking about finances. I'm talking about spiritual investment. Church, you have to be in relationship with other followers of Christ. One of the last things that Paul says in this opening passage, these opening verses, he gives them this. He says, grace and peace to you. Not from yourselves, but from who? What does it say? God our Father. And how does that grace and peace come? It comes through being in Christ. You see, because if you think back to your life, if you think back to your life apart from Christ, there was no peace. It was filled with seeking thing after thing after thing after thing that you placed in the place of God. Your selfishness. But only through the blood of Christ, through the belief of of Jesus' perfect life, His, His death on the cross and His resurrection, we're brought into the family and we're given what? Grace and peace in the midst of whatever turmoil you have in your life. And that's why church this morning that we can hold up our heads high. Because if you're a follower of Christ, you are in Christ, your position has changed, right? Your position has changed. You've been brought into the family. You've been given the family name. And no matter how bad your dad may have been messed up here on earth, you have a Father in heaven who loves you deeply. And I know some of you in the room, you have a hard time with that concept. Maybe your dad wasn't a good dad. And you don't want another father because he betrayed you time and time and time again. But our father shows his love by taking on flesh and coming to this earth and dying on a cross for your sin. And he loves you deeply. And if you're in here this morning and you haven't, you haven't taken that step because you're not sure, you're skeptical of, of who God is and what He's done. You're skeptical of this whole church thing. Maybe you've been hurt in the past by, by other Christians. But I want to say to you here today, today's the day to make a decision. Do you want that grace and peace in your life? Or do you want to keep 
running from God. Maybe you're in this room and you're like, I don't, I don't get this whole sin thing. I'm fine. I live a good life. How about shame? Maybe instead of sin, we say shame. Do you feel shameful? Do you feel distant? Do you feel an angst inside of you that you can't find the answer to? God answers that question through his son, Jesus Christ. And right now, as you, as you hear these words, he can, he can come into your life. He's not going to fix all your problems, but he will give you purpose, and he will give you a family that loves you. Your eternity will be secure in him. That's all you have to do is put your trust in his work here this morning. And this phrase that Paul uses here at the end of verse 2, grace and peace will be on you. And I can tell you today, it's a peace that passes understanding. I know personally in my life, I've seen it in people's lives in this room and at the last church I was at, that there, it made no sense why they would have peace other than they had faith in Jesus Christ and they knew that their father was good and they knew that his purpose was good and they knew that his will would bring him glory and that is the greatest good for us. And so I tell you this morning, even if it doesn't make sense, if you have that stirring going on inside of you today, that's God's Holy Spirit. He's, he's knocking on your shoulder right now and He's saying, I want to I help you. Put your trust in Him this morning. If you've done that already, there's no reason to put your head down. There's no reason to bury your head into the ground, but to look to God and just be thankful and say, thank you for this grace and peace that you've given me. Thank you that you have called me to be in Christ. My position has changed because of your righteousness, not anything that I've done. And so regardless of what this world throws at me, sickness, a crazy country, crazy politics, whatever those things are, I can hold my head up high because I worship a king that's victorious. Amen? Amen. And this morning, in just a few minutes, we're going to celebrate what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Just a few minutes as a family, we're going to do this together as a family. We're going to respond to what Christ did on the cross. We're going to stand... We have communion around the room. Uh, the bread represents bodies, uh, Christ's body that was broken for you on the cross. And the, the juice represents His blood that is a covering for your sin. We call that an atonement. Christ's blood covered your sin. And why are we doing this at the end? Because I want you to hear the gospel proclaimed. I want you to hear what Christ has done for you. And then I want you to walk forward and respond. How do we respond? We respond by being reflective and looking at our hearts and saying, God, where do you want me to change? Where do you want it, me to be transformed? How do I align my will with your will? How do I walk in step with your spirit? It begins with communion each and every week, examining ourselves and saying, okay, God, I know this is something that I have to work on. Forgive me for that. Forgive me for the way I've fallen short. And then come forward and receive these 
these emblems that show us Christ and what He has done for us. If you're not a follower of Christ, if you're skeptical, but you've heard this this message this morning and, and the Spirit's stirring within your heart, I would urge you, place your trust, place your faith in what Jesus has done. You may not understand everything, but I would urge you to do that. Place your faith in that. Come forward, receive communion with us for the first time as a follower of Christ. And then there's going to be some leaders spread across the front of this room that are going to talk to you. They're going to pray with you. They're going to help you with that decision that you've made to place your faith and trust in Jesus. And then after that, this morning in the last song, we're going to respond by by giving. God's called us to be a giving people, uh, to give both to the mission of this church and to the mission of the gospel being spread all around the globe. And so through the, uh, during the last song, we're going to receive an offering together as a church family. But I want you guys to hear this. You've heard what Christ has done for you. You've heard what it means to be in Christ, to be brought into the family, to be given the family name, to have a new family. Respond to Him this morning. Receive the Lord's Supper. Sing out to Him. There's many different ways you can respond. Come forward. Receive prayer. Quietly reflect to yourself and think about what Jesus has done for you. And then be thankful. Don't be solemn. Be thankful. Raise your hands to Him with a thankful and glad heart. Amen? With that, too, with communion, I want to encourage for those of you who can't get around the room, uh, if you're not able to get to a station, after everybody's done receiving communion, just raise your hand, and we have some gentlemen that will come around. They would love to serve you. Or if your friends and family want to grab that for you and bring it back and serve you, it's a beautiful picture of the body of Christ serving each other right here this morning. Okay, let's pray together. God, we do love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your word and... We thank you for the way that you speak to us, how relevant it is in this time, in this place. God, that you, you spoke to a, an insignificant people in an insignificant town that's buried under rubble now. And God, that should encourage us because we're all pretty insignificant. There's so many of us, but yet you care for us and you show that. You show that through the perfect life of your son who came. He left his throne in heaven and he came and he took on human flesh to do what we couldn't do. Lord, we thank you for his perfect life, the way that he fulfilled the law perfectly for us. God, we thank you that he was willing to take the punishment for our sin on the cross. We're thankful for his body that was broken and his blood that was spilled to cover our sin and take away our shame. And Lord, most of all, we're thankful for his victory that came on the third day, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when he came out of the grave and defeated death. Lord, we're thankful that you have promised us that gift. God, help us to be a people of joy and victory. Lord, help us to not wallow around in what is going on in our country and what may be going on in our lives, but to be about your business. To be about transformation. To be about your work. Worry does us no good. But being about 
your business brings you glory and brings us incredible joy. So help us to be about your business this morning. Lord, guide our hearts as we walk forward, as we receive communion, as we remember your body that was sacrificed for us. Lord, we thank you that you remove our, sh- our game and our, our shame and our guilt and you help us to focus on you. Lord, help us to have joyful hearts this morning as we, as we give back to your mission. And for those in the room that need prayer, God, help them to, to find the power to walk forward, to pray with our elders this morning. Help them to feel the love of this church family around them as it surrounds them. And God, help our hearts as we head out to be a people of victory and to be a people of your business as we go out into this community and we shine a light in this place. We shine a light in our workplaces and in our homes as we engage with our neighbors. Lord, help them to see people that are different but are different in a good way. Help them to see the light of Christ. We pray these things through the power of the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.